Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. So to reduce costs, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. Over 70,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash gps. netsuite.com slash gps. This is GPS, the global public square. Welcome to all of you in the United States and around the world. I'm Fareed Zakaria coming to you live from New York. Today on the program, Finland and Sweden have now officially applied for NATO membership. Their entry into the alliance would mean Russia's border with NATO would double in size. Is the West provoking Vladimir Putin again or finally putting in place a strong deterrent? We have a great panel to discuss. Then, the Buffalo shooting suspect was obsessed with the idea that white people are systematically being replaced by other races. He's not alone. Why are these demographic fears going mainstream in countries around the globe? I'll talk to two experts. But first, here's my take. President Biden says that combating inflation is his top domestic priority. But he certainly isn't acting that way. He has in plain sight several measures that would reduce inflation significantly and yet appears hesitant to do them. As many distinguished economists have noted, the repeal of most or all of Donald Trump's tariffs would be the single most effective way of reducing inflation in the near future. As a reminder, a tariff is a tax on goods paid by the American consumer who buys those goods. It is by definition inflationary. It raises the price of the good, like an imported car. But it causes even more inflation than that because it raises the price of the domestically made equivalent good as well. If a Mazda sells for more, then Ford and General Motors also raise prices on their cars. The reverse logic applies as well. If you cut tariffs, that also has a broader effect. When the Mazda gets cheaper, Ford and GM will cut prices on their products to compete. In March, the Peterson Institute for International Economics produced a study estimating that reversing most of the Trump tariffs would reduce inflation by 1.3 percentage points. Larry Summers, who has been prescient on many things in this economic crisis, endorsed that study concurring that trade barrier reduction was the single biggest microeconomic measure by far that could be taken to alleviate inflation in the near term. The second one, he noted, would be immigration reform. This is the time to reverse Trump's restrictions on immigration, many done by executive action, which have caused severe worker shortages in industries like farming, construction, and healthcare. The problem, however, is not one relating to facts or logic. No one seriously disputes the validity of these claims. During the campaign, Biden lambasted Trump's tariffs on China and much of his immigration policy. Yet after entering office, the Biden White House has behaved on these issues like a deer caught in the headlights, paralyzed from fear that any major shift might get attacked by Republicans. This defensive crouch is not just visible in economic policy, but foreign policy as well. 
Biden campaigned on the notion that Trump had been a dangerous aberration in American politics, that his policies had been far outside the mainstream, and that Biden would return the country to normalcy. Imagine if Biden had, in his first week in office, changed a slew of Trump policies, ending the tariff wars, re-entering the Iran nuclear deal, restoring some normalcy to America's relationship with Cuba. Instead, almost a year and a half into the Biden administration, on issue after issue, we are still living in Donald Trump's world. Biden might have paid a small political price initially had he done what I suggested, but that would have been short-lived and he would have reaped the gains of more sensible policies for the rest of his term. The Democratic Party has learned the wrong lessons from Trump's narrow victory in 2016. It believes the only way to woo white working-class voters is to engage in a set of Trump-light economic policies, chiefly protectionism and mercantilism. But Trump voters are motivated largely by cultural issues. Just listen to Republican Governor Ron DeSantis, Ohio Senate candidate J.D. Vance, Pennsylvania candidate Mehmet Oz, and others rail about cancel culture, gender identity, woke corporations, and of course now abortion. In that realm, Democrats need to listen more and adjust some of their rhetoric and actions. On economics, voters are looking for results, some of which Biden could easily deliver by reducing tariffs and easing certain immigration restrictions. Inflation hurts the poor and the lower middle class the most because they spend a much larger share of their income on items like food and clothing. Those get cheaper thanks to global trade. Getting cheap stuff at Walmart is a much bigger boon for someone making $30,000 a year rather than $300,000. In Britain, inflation, which is at a 40-year high, mostly caused by Brexit, is having a particularly adverse effect on lower-income groups. Similarly, studies show that tariffs are also regressive, hurting the poor much more than the rich. A conventional wisdom has congealed in the United States that decades of free trade have led to stagnant wages for the middle class and misery for the working class. That view conveniently excludes the massive benefits that have accrued thanks to dramatic and sustained reductions in the cost of crucial aspects of life, such as food, clothing, and technology. We are witnessing what happens when the economic winds move in the opposite direction and costs start spiraling up. It might even make us all a little nostalgic for globalization. Go to cnn.com slash Fareed for a link to my Washington Post column this week. And let's get started. On Monday, Russia's deputy foreign minister declared that Finland and Sweden joining NATO would be a mistake. On Wednesday, the Nordic neighbors officially submitted their applications to join the alliance. On Saturday, Russia then shut off its gas pipeline to Finland, claiming the move was due to a payment dispute. The debate continues. Is NATO expansion a good idea? Let me bring in the panel. Charlie Kupchin is a professor of international affairs at Georgetown and a senior fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations. He was senior director for Europe and President Obama's National Security Council. And Radek Sikorski was both foreign minister and defense minister of Poland. He is now a member of the European Parliament. Charlie, let me uh, give you a chance to start by stating your case. Why were you, as I recall, uh, back in the in the 90s and early 2000s, why were you opposed to NATO expansion? 
What is the case against it? Well, just to set the record straight, I'm now for it and supportive of Finland and Sweden joining the alliance precisely because Russia has invaded Ukraine and Finland and Sweden now are looking for more protection. But going back to the 1990s when this debate took place in the Clinton administration, my view was that to proceed at that time with formal NATO enlargement violated two basic principles. One, include the defeated adversary in the post-war settlement. And by enforcing a new line further east, I fear that the message to Russia was you're not included. And secondly, the principle of not in my backyard. Major powers generally don't like it when other major powers come into their neighborhood. The United States spent much of its history pushing Europe's great powers and others out of the Western Hemisphere. And so my sense was, let's let's move forward with what was called the Partnership for Peace, a more flexible vehicle that would have allowed Russia, as well as other countries, to work with NATO. That decision was not taken. How much did NATO enlargement play in the fact that Russia went down a dark path? Very difficult to say. Clearly, flawed democratization, flawed privatization. Putin comes into power, doesn't build a modern economy, turns to Eurasian nationalism, a mystical claim about Russia's uh, importance in in the Eurasian sphere. This all played a role in his decision to invade Ukraine. It's very difficult at this point to say how much weight can we assign to the enlargement of NATO. Uh, Radek, what about that, uh, that argument? Russia is a great power. It does have legitimate interests. And it was not just Putin who was opposed to NATO expansion. It was Yeltsin. Um, and despite repeated Russian objections uh, saying this is a red line for us, there were five waves of NATO expansion, right? 15 countries, including your own, uh, about 100 million people brought into the alliance. Isn't that provocative? Uh, Russia has legitimate security interests, but so do Russia's neighbors, in particular the right to exist, which President Putin is denying to Ukraine. Uh, Sweden and Finland want to join NATO for the same reasons that everybody else wanted to join NATO, for common defense, for common protection. And um, when uh, President Putin now says, no big deal, we'll watch if there are any deployments, that just proves that those um, so-called realist theories uh, were all wrong, uh, because uh, Putin should now be invading Finland and Sweden. Uh, because supposedly even the intention of wanting to join NATO invites uh, invasion. Um, No, President Putin has uh, turned out to be a a revisionist uh, uh, aggressor. Uh, We need to stop him in Ukraine. If we don't stop him in Ukraine, we we will find him on the borders of Poland uh, and Finland. Um, So it's very important that the Ukrainians be given the means to um, not only def- uh, defend Kiev, but to recover territory. And uh, I'm very glad that uh, uh, President Biden has signed the uh, package of uh, assistance to Ukraine. And I hope Ukraine will be able to become secure uh, and uh, enjoy the, ca- the security guarantees that were given to it in the 1990s. Um, Charlie, I want to dwell on this historical point because it is so crucial. Um, So when I think about this issue, um, what I wonder about, isn't Ukraine an interesting test case for the thesis that NATO expansion is what caused uh, or what provoked Russia? Because 
Ukraine is not a member of NATO. And Ukraine's desire to be closer to the West, um, remember it was their desire to be closer to the EU in 2014, provoked the Russian uh, expansion and aggression. So imagine a scenario in the 1990s where your advice had been heeded and NATO had not extended membership to Poland. Poland clearly wanted its historic destiny to be in the West. It would have made moves in that direction. If Putin had regarded those moves as, as you know, illegitimate and he, he might have done some military action in Poland and the West would face the same problem it faces in Ukraine. Not a member of NATO, but a democratic European country that wants to be closer to the West. Are we really not going to help it? Well, you know, Roddick and I now end up in the same place, and, and I would agree with Roddick that Putin is a revisionist aggressor and he needs to be stopped. We'll never be able to replay history. We'll never be able to know whether things would have turned out differently had we proceeded with a strategy that led to the formal enlargement of NATO only if necessary as opposed to putting the cart before the horse and moving even while Russia was still trying to figure out its future. Uh, me, you, Roddick, we're going to be debating this issue until the end of time, and we're never going to get an answer. But I do think that what we're seeing here is, is a test case, and that Russia has invaded Ukraine. The United States, its NATO allies, have made a decision not to go to war with Russia over this issue. They're not enforcing a no-fly zone. They're not putting boots on the ground. And that's an indication of the desire not to see this escalate, not to see World War III over Ukraine. If that's the case, then why would we want to give a security guarantee to Ukraine? There's a, there's a fundamental tension here that we need to resolve. But I do think, yes, it's good to give Ukraine the ability to defend itself. Let's push the Russians as far back as we can. Let's also, in my mind, try to bring this war to a close sooner rather than later, given the risks of escalation, given the blowback on economies around the world. I think, Fareed, this is probably the most dangerous point since the Cuban Missile Crisis, maybe more dangerous because this is a hot war. Bombs are dropping. Missiles are flying. This is a very dangerous situation. All right. Stay with us. And we are going to talk to Roddick and, and Charlie Kaptchen about how to get out of this. What is the resolution when we get back? And we are back with Charlie Kupchin and Radek Sikorsky talking about Finland and Sweden's applications to join NATO and how Putin will react. Uh, but let me ask you, Radek, uh, what should we do with Ukraine? What should the West do with Ukraine? Um, you know, there's, I think there's general agreement that the 2008 Bucharest Declaration was, was badly done because it, it vaguely promised NATO and, uh, Ukraine and Georgia membership in NATO, but didn't provide a known pathway, no timetable. So it was sort of enough to anger Putin without doing enough to protect uh, Ukraine. But how do you resolve that? Should going forward, Ukraine be given security guarantees by the West? Actually, you're talking about the uh, 2008 uh, NATO summit, which I attended. The Budapest Declaration was earlier in 1994. Sorry, Bucharest. I said Bucharest, uh, Bucharest was the NATO summit. The Budapest Declaration uh, was the agreement whereby Russia, primarily, the United States, uh, Britain, 
uh, and then later uh, France and China, gave Ukraine the guarantees of independence and security of borders in return for Ukraine giving up what was then the world's third largest uh, nuclear stockpile. And Russia has clearly broken uh, the uh, security assurances that it has given. So it's very difficult to uh, deal with a head of state like Mr. Putin, who customarily lies and breaks international agreements. But what to do about Ukraine? Give it a security guarantee now? or? we are giving Ukraine something better than security guarantees, namely the means to do what they, what they want to do anyway, which is to defend their land from purges, from, uh, uh, from uh, war crimes, from uh, deportations to, uh, to gulags in, in Russia. Um, you know, Charlie was in the Obama administration, which advised the Ukrainians not to fight in Crimea. That led to uh, Donbass. Uh, They didn't then uh, arm Ukraine. So uh, Putin thought uh, that uh, he could take all of Ukraine and extinguish it as an an independent nation without paying a price. Well, I'm very glad that the lesson has been learned and that he is now paying a price. And we need to expel him from Ukraine because if we don't, we'll find him on the border of NATO. Uh, Charlie, you, you disagree because you've written a piece in The Atlantic saying the Ukrainians should essentially pocket what gains they have and, st- and stop at this point, uh, not try to kind of regain all their territory, right? Um, the, the, the problem with that, uh, I, I just uh, uh, wonder, is the Russians don't seem ready to negotiate even on those terms. I mean, the Ukrainians do seem to want to recover more of their territory, but the Russians, as far as I can tell, are not seriously negotiating about anything at all to end this conflict. Well, first point I'd make is kudos to the Biden administration for putting together an amazing coalition and putting on the ground in Ukraine the arms that Ukraine needs to defend itself. I do think, Fareed, that we're getting to a phase of the conflict in which the war is going to be more difficult for the Ukrainians. They're now more on offense than on defense, trying to push back positions that Russia took in 2014. And as a consequence, I do think we're going to see more of a stalemate, and that will provide an opportunity for a conversation with the Ukrainians about their war aims. And yes, it is up to the Ukrainians, but I think the United States, the Poles, other NATO allies should be discussing how to bring the war to an end sooner rather than later. I don't have in my mind some sense of exactly where to stop. What should we push the Ukrainian, should we push the the Russians out of Donbass, but not try to retake Crimea? This is the conversation that needs to take place. But do keep in mind, number one, the risks of escalation. Number two, the blowback effects. I'm very worried that as we head to the midterms, the America first wing of the Republican Party is going to get stronger and stronger. We've seen primary candidates, J.D. Vance in Ohio. He won that primary. What was his policy toward Ukraine? I don't care what happens on the border between Ukraine and Russia. So it's for these reasons that I worry that the staying power, the bipartisan staying power of the United States is uncertain. The unity that we've seen across the Atlantic is uncertain. The Italians have just put forward a peace proposal. This is the time in my mind to begin having a conversation with Ukraine and ultimately with Russia about ending the war sooner rather than later. Uh, Radhika, I have 45 seconds left. 
but I want to ask you, fair to say your solution to uh, resolving this conflict is defeat Russia, expel Russia? Well, we've just had a meeting of the EU-US delegation here in Paris, and that was uh, the bipartisan, uh, bipartisan also on the American side view that Putin needs to be defeated. Only then will Russia reform itself. And if Russia reforms itself, perhaps under a different leadership, maybe she would uh, join the West, which would be a good thing. Radek Sikorsky, Charles Kupchin, pleasure to have both of you on. This, this debate and discussion will, of course, continue. Um, next on GPS, last weekend's shootings in Buffalo were believed to be inspired by something called replacement theory. That is a false conspiracy theory that says there is a concerted, intentional, ongoing effort to replace white populations in Western countries. It's not just in the U.S. that this kind of conspiracy theory is going mainstream. We'll tell you about this global problem in just a moment. The Buffalo shooter murdered 10 people in a supermarket he appeared to have carefully chosen for being in a predominantly black neighborhood. Judging by his writing, the suspect was obsessed with what is known as replacement theory, the idea that the white race is being systematically supplanted by others. As you will hear from today's panel, it's an idea that's been spreading around the world. Cynthia Miller Idris runs the Polarization and Extremism Research and Innovation Lab at American University. She's the author of Hate in the Homeland, the New Global Far Right. And Ishan Tharoor is a columnist for the foreign desk of the Washington Post. He had a great series published this week on Viktor Orban and the American right. Cynthia, let me start with you uh, and just help us understand where does this idea of replacement, uh, broadly speaking, come from? What are the sort of intellectual roots of this? Well, the the theory, I should say false and dangerous theory, right? I don't want to give it any more credence than it has. It's a conspiracy theory that has age-old roots in, in ideas about threats from immigrants or replacement. But uh, as a concept, the great replacement, which is what we're talking about here, was coined about 11 years ago by a French scholar and very quickly taken up um, by white supremacists globally because it was a concept that unified what had been sort of disparate conspiracy theories that were Related. So in the U.S., a conspiracy theory called white genocide. In Europe, a conspiracy theory called Eurabia. Both of these, on one hand, anti-Semitic conspiracy theory, the other Islamophobic in its roots, that, that said that either Jews or Muslims were orchestrating uh, a, you know, as puppet masters, sort of this nefarious plot to, um, to either expand the caliphate or to get, get more power by uh, bringing in you know, multicultural societies through demographic change and immigration that would eliminate white or Christian civilizations. That's the basic roots of the conspiracy theory. To my mind, what's interesting is I, I recall reading that stuff about, as you say, about 10 years ago, maybe, and most of it had this uh, ominous predictions about a demographic tidal wave that was going to sweep uh, Europe and, and America. And what's striking to me is none of that has happened. The, the, these predictions about how uh, Europe was in 10 years going to become a third Muslim and things like that haven't really happened. Does that, has that deterred people much? 
No, I mean, it's it's not, it, it hasn't deterred people in part because it doesn't matter what the facts are. There, It's positioned as a sense of threat. And uh, whether it's true or not that there's demographic change, the idea is that the demographic change is an existential threat and one that has is called upon to be uh, acted against with violence. And it's why they often portray themselves as heroic martyrs and are trying to get others to imitate them. I will say that, you know, one of the things that made the Great Replacement catch on so quickly among global white supremacist extremists is that it became infused with a social media landscape and an, and an online ecosystem in which jokes and memes and video snippets and live streaming enable a whole different way of encountering the conspiracy theory. So you don't have to just read an academic text or you know an analyze something that comes out of a newsletter that you signed up for, but young people, teenagers, are encountering it on in the chans and 4chan and elsewhere, you know, where they just um, share it, but Dis, you know, sort of discounted to adults as a joke. Uh, and then the Christchurch shooter named his manifesto the Great Replacement and, of course, live-streamed that attack. And that launched a lot of kind of copycat imitators, including uh, the shooter in Buffalo. So, Ishan, when you look at the, the American right or the American far right or extremists, uh, however you describe it, how much do you think they're, they were, they're being inspired by these characters like Brevik in Norway or the Christchurch shooter? Um, is there a kind of, uh, is there an ongoing connection? I think there's a very strong and enduring link uh, between, you know, the kinds of actions we're seeing now, the kind of very overheated extremist rhetoric that we see now, and this tradition of white supremacist violence uh, that has set in over the past decade, two decades, uh, in various parts of the world. I, I think it's really important to stress that uh, this this is a theory that has gone quite mainstream in the West. We're not just talking about uh, isolated extremists writing online manifestos. We're talking about French presidential candidates openly touting it. We're talking about uh, the most popular cable anchor in this country. Uh, apologies, Farid. Uh, essentially espousing it himself. And and this is, it's, it's fascinating when we think about how we've spent the better part of the part of the past two decades really obsessing over as, you know, Western media and, of course, the, the security states in the West have been really focused on the threat of Islamic extremism, the threat of the ideologies represented by uh, these or believed by these jihadists. And you really have to think that in a lot of Muslim-majority countries, the ideologies that drive the jihadists are nowhere near as mainstream as the very explicit racist conspiracy theory that is fueling white supremacist violence in the West. Ishan, I want to ask you, though, about uh, what is the difference between the past uh, stirs like this in American history and this one, which seems to be much more violent? In other words, there were similar concerns in the 1920s uh, about America being overwhelmed by, in those days, Italians and Irish and, uh, to a certain extent, uh, Jews. And th that's part of why the 1924 restrictions were put in place. But this one seems to be breeding a good bit more violence. I, I don't think we should discount the, the very long history of nativist violence in this country. Uh, you know, obviously, the, the KKK and so many other histories of lynching and, and mob violence against immigrants and minorities of various stripes. Uh, but yes, what you're seeing right now is a kind of global conversation feeding into the American conversation. Uh, 
the sense of uh, a kind of all-consuming threat. The thing about the Great Replacement Theory is it's not just that there is demographic change. It's that there is a supposed kind of orchestrated political project to engineer that demographic change. And so that really whips up uh, in extremist circles this, this idea that you have to take down an entire liberal establishment. It's, it's wrapped up in a, a very hardline nationalist pose that bleeds into the mainstream. And I think that crossover from fringe, aggressive uh, xenophobia to a kind of political backlash that is far wider than just small circles of people online uh, is new and incredibly concerning for the health of this democracy. Next on GPS, what do American conservatives, replacement theory, and Hungarian Prime Minister Viktor Orban have to do with each other? Find out in a moment. The Conservative Political Action Conference, or CPAC, is one of the most influential organizations on the American right. For the first time ever this week, it held a meeting in Europe. On Thursday, Hungarian Prime Minister Viktor Orban was the opening speaker at a CPAC conference in Budapest. Why Orban? Why Hungary? We are back with Ishan Tarur and Cynthia Miller-Idris. Ishan has been writing smartly about this in the Washington Post. Cynthia runs the Polarization and Extremism Research and Innovation Lab at American University and has many books about extremism as well. Uh, Ishan, tell us what, in a nutshell, is the fascination that the American right has with Viktor Orban? Well, you know, it is it is fascinating. You know, Hungary should not is not a geopolitically important country on its own right. It has a population just above nine million. Uh, it has a middling economy of no great consequence that still depends on EU handouts in many cases. Uh, it's seen a big brain drain uh, over the last couple of decades of its best and brightest. But uh, because of Viktor Orban, who's been uh, who's now entering his, his fourth consecutive term since 2010, it really occupies a fascinating space in the imagination of the European far right and indeed the American right wing movement. That's because I, I would suggest that Orban represents not just a template for illiberal right wing nationalist political victory, but also for victory in the culture war. Uh, I mean, obviously, here in the United States, you have Republicans who nurse all sorts of cultural grievances and really see whether it's true or not a kind that they are up against a kind of uh, liberal hegemony, whether it's the media or big tech or sort of the universities and educational institutions. Uh, and they look at Hungary, where Orban has essentially smashed all that, where Orban has set about, uh, you know, recreating a media ecosystem that is very pro, pro-government and very nationalist, where Orban has set about cowing uh, educational institutions uh, in his favor, where he set about bringing major conglomerates uh, to, make, to, make, to make them tow his party line. And while all of this is deeply damaging for Hungary's liberal democracy, and you could argue that Hungary is no longer a genuine liberal democracy, but in, in, instead something else, maybe a kind of competitive autocracy, um, this is something that is actively cheered by right-wing nationalists elsewhere in the world, including here in the United States. Cynthia, w- one of the things that you've been highlighting for a long time is this rise of cultural issues relating to race, religion, um, things like that. And it feels like Orban really occupies that space. Um, as, as Ishan says, it's not a particularly free market country. It's not a particularly, you know, there's nothing about Hungary's economy that's interesting. It's, there's a lot of state subsidies, uh, most, a lot of uh, rece- receiving EU subsidies. But what is distinctive is this cultural conservatism. 
Yeah, I absolutely agree. I think we're seeing that that uh, a praise for the strongman approach, um, also for anti uh, LGBTQ and you know for for anti feminist uh, kinds of arguments and ideas. A call for traditionalism. I mean, a lot of I think conservatives and far right folks in the U.S. see see their feelings and emotions and and that political uh, ideas echoed in what uh, they're seeing as a success. It's the same reason why some of them will praise Putin. And even on the extreme right uh, in the fringes, we saw occasionally uh, in last summer praise for the Taliban based on the same grounds. This idea that that you're standing up against the West, against a supposed hegemony of a leftist liberal multicultural agenda um, that is eroding tradition and values. And so, uh, you know, it, it, that's by no means unified across the fringe. There are also uh, other takes on Putin, for example, and on Russia, and we see that in the Ukraine-Russia conflict. Uh, Ishan, the, the Putin point, though, is an, is an important one, which is that in many parts of the far right in Europe, certainly, and a few in the United States, uh, very few, uh, you did see a praise of Russia for precisely that region. He was a kind of white nationalist uh, celebrating cultural conservatism. Absolutely. He and his his allies have long set themselves up as this kind of anti-liberal pole in Western politics or in European politics, uh, standing athwart this tide of liberalism that's washing over uh, the West and, you know, doing things like making sure that gender and and gay rights aren't prioritized, Uh, going about... uh, they're, they're sort of structuring society in such a way that uh, traditional national values uh, endure. And one thing that really hangs over a lot of these countries, and Russia and Hungary especially, is declining birth rates. And in Orban's case, you see uh, a ruler who is actively and incredibly dogmatically opposed to immigration and demonizes immigrants, and especially those who are not Christian, uh, including Muslim refugees, and instead promotes a, a very committed program to boost birth rates in his country. Now, he has slightly improved fertility rates, and this is something that is is taken up by uh, even you know would-be Republican uh, Senate candidates like J.D. Vance here, who has celebrated Orban's policies around promoting families and, and incentivizing couples to have babies. And, 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 and it's done in such a way that uh, you you argue that these birthdays will, will mean that we don't have to have immigration. Orban is constantly saying that the European project is about replacing Europeans. and uh, It's about bringing in immigrants and not boosting their own native-born populations. And so there is a very strong connection between the idea of the Great Replacement and these demographic anxieties uh, that weigh on the far right and especially nationalist leaders who are in power. Cynthia Meleidris, Ishan thank you both. Next on GPS, China's economy is in trouble. But that is nothing to celebrate, and I'll tell you why in a moment. And now for the last look. This week, officials in Shanghai pledged that soon they would begin to ease the city's draconian, weeks-long lockdown that has left residents often short of food, factories shuttered, and families sequestered in their homes. But the lockdowns in Shanghai and elsewhere in China have left their mark. Just released economic data for April shows that industrial output, what factories produced, fell by 2.9%. Consumer spending fell by 11.1%. The numbers are worse than some experts expected and represent the worst level since early 2020, when the economy, of course, ground to a halt at the outbreak of COVID-19. 
Now, this may seem like a China-specific story, but don't forget, for years, China has driven global economic growth, both through its market of more than a billion consumers and through its manufacturing sector, which is the backbone of international trade. Last year, China accounted for 18% of global GDP. That is a smaller share than the U.S., but a larger one than the entire European Union. China is responsible for close to a third of global manufacturing output, according to UN data, and about 12% of global trade. So any downturn in its economy hurts the world. Shanghai holds particular importance for the global economy. It's a center for tech and car manufacturing. Its port is the world's busiest. In 2021, it moved four times the amount of cargo handled by the port of Los Angeles. As The Economist reports, in mid-April, 506 vessels were waiting to unload outside of Shanghai's port, compared with 260 in February. Companies can't find truck drivers to move cargo, and these kinds of logistical problems during the lockdowns have led to supply constraints for all kinds of companies. Take Apple. As Nikkei Asia reports, half of the company's top 200 suppliers are located in and around Shanghai. Apple has said it could lose between $4 and $8 billion in sales on account of the lockdown. Then there's the car industry. As the Wall Street Journal notes, BMW reported a 19% decline in production in the first quarter of this calendar year compared to last year, in part because China's lockdowns forced it to suspend operations at factories. Tesla's troubles are particularly illuminating. The company began housing workers at its Shanghai factory to get around lockdown restrictions. But as Reuters reports, it still had trouble manufacturing cars because of the shortage of parts, including wire harnesses which bind the cables of electric vehicles together. So Tesla sold just about 1,500 cars made at its Shanghai plant in April. In March, it had sold 65,000. There's trouble elsewhere too. Sony and Microsoft have had trouble producing Xboxes and Playstations. And hospitals all over the world are facing a shortage of the contrast dye used in some X-ray and CT scans because the Chinese factory that produces the dye was shuttered for weeks. And these supply chain disruptions could exacerbate the worst domestic problem in America right now, inflation. The world economy is intertwined in unimaginably complex ways. Even if you chafe at that reality, as many in Washington and Beijing do, you can't ignore it. A looming economic downturn in China may have some hawks in Washington rejoicing, but the truth is it will hurt Americans. We are finding out the hard way that while many worry about the consequences of China's strong economic growth for America, the opposite, China's economic stagnation, might pose even more problems for Americans. Thanks to all of you for being part of my program this week. I will see you next week. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.